Good afternoon and welcome to today's CME activity. There is no commercial support. The speakers and planners have disclosed no relevant financial relationships with any commercial interests. You will receive a SurveyMonkey link after today's activity. And if you are viewing online, the evaluation link will be listed in the chat section and in the links icon at the bottom of the screen. It is my pleasure to introduce Melissa Frank, who is our Executive Director of Pharmacy. Melissa. Okay, thank you. Um, good afternoon. Um, I asked Jennifer if I could have the pleasure of introducing our speaker today because he is um, someone who is near and dear to my heart as well as most of the room. So I think um, so far in the room, we have one or two physician attendees and the rest are pharmacists, most graduates from the University of Georgia. So I'm just gonna start um, by introducing Rusty. Rusty is a clinical professor and assistant dean for extended campuses um, at the University of Georgia College of Pharmacy. Prior to his move to academia full-time in 2003, Dr. May was a drug information specialist and a clinical manager in the pharmacy department at the Medical College of Georgia, which MCG is what it was known at the time. It's now um, Augusta University Medical Center. He was there for 22 years, including uh, serving as director of pharmacy for five years. He's a graduate of the University of Kentucky Pharmacy School. Um, and since 1981, he has focused his practice in the areas of drug information and drug policy development. In 2007, he was named Teacher of the Year at the UGA College of Pharmacy. He is a fellow of the American Society of Health System Pharmacists and a past president of the Georgia Society of Health System Pharmacists. Um, he has served as a visiting professor at a university in Cairo, Egypt, which is an interesting fact, and he actually assisted with the development of their drug information center there. Um, he was the recipient of the 2014 Distinguished Drug Information Practitioner Award from the American College of Clinical Pharmacy. Uh, Drug Information Practice and Research Network, that's a mouthful, and received the 2018 Paul Parker Award from the University of Kentucky. Um, on top of that, um, I think the reason there's a lot of folks here is there are many of us um, who were students um, in one of Rusty's classes um, in pharmacy school, but he was also my residency program director, um, as well as Leslie Roebuck, who's our neuro-ICU clinical pharmacist. We both um, were residents um, under his program and um, he was my supervisor for a while and really just shaped, um, I'll just say it in front of him and embarrass him before he gets into talks, but we agreed um, in preparation for this talk that he shaped um, the careers of most of the people in this room in one way or another and many, many more out there. So I just wanted the opportunity um, to introduce him to say thank you, but I hope you find his talk informative. I know you will find it entertaining. Um, it is a talk that he um, presents throughout the state. Um, every year, and it is very well attended and well appreciated. So with no further ado, Rusty May. <laughs> Thank you, Melissa. I appreciate that. Well, thanks for inviting me, first of all. It's a pleasure to be here to get to see uh, several former students. That's fantastic. I feel like it's old home week for us. For those of you on Zoom, greeting. Thanks for uh, logging in and watching this presentation. <clears throat> now, that bio sounds way too long, but I think one thing it illustrates is I've had a really fun career and what made it so much fun was the folks I've got to work with over the years. So uh, thanks back to all of you folks that uh, in the back of the room there. Um, I want to make this uh, new drug update as entertaining as possible. You can sometimes a new drug update, you get so uh, drawn up in the details and the minutia that uh, you really don't go away with learning exactly what's important. So the way I approach this is, is different. Let's talk about this. First of all, nothing to disclose. 
Uh, pharmaceutical companies really don't want me talking about their drugs because I'm highly cynical uh, when it comes to new drugs. So uh, I hope that doesn't offend anybody. I think I'm justifiably cynical when a drug first comes out because a lot of things are talked about that haven't really been proven yet. Now these objectives, I've used these objectives, um, oh my gosh, this is aging me, but over 35 years without changing them. And the reason why is because they work well. And the feedback I get is, yes, let's learn it that way because it's easy to remember some of these things. Um, compare and contrast newly approved drugs with older agents with regards to their pharmacology, pharmacokinetics, efficacy, safety, dosing, and cost. I have a slide for each one of those things with each of the new drugs. I want you to do that. I want to use a formulary approach. And I know my former students in the room know exactly what that is. I think I asked to get on every exam since I came to the University of Georgia back in the early 80s. Uh, but the formulary approach is a great way to evaluate a new drug. Points out what's important, makes you think about it, because that formulary approach, uh, well, I'll define it in just a minute. Then uh, I'll show a slide with some other drugs that were released this year that didn't have time to talk about. Um, thanks to Alex, she picked out the drugs for today um, that, that she thought folks would be interested in, the ones I had ready to go. Then at the end, whatever time we have left, I'm gonna run through some pipeline drugs that are out there. Uh, it's pretty exciting uh, when you take a look at what's in the future uh, with drug releases. So here's the drugs we picked out for today. I think we've got something hopefully will interest everybody. Uh, at the top there, we have a, a asthma drug. We've got a, a top, atopic dermatitis issue. That's something I have a problem with. So that one's near to my heart. Something for migraine, something for acne. A very familiar looking drug there right in the middle, but we'll talk about that because it looks like a drug that's been on the market for a long time, but this is something totally new, believe it or not. Got a new pain medication, not a pain, it's an opiate that's totally different than the opiates. It's not used for pain, it's used for itching. Uh, got a very interesting drug for uh, alopecia that I think folks will find interesting, especially the results of the studies. Uh, the drug that hit the news for weight loss, second to the bottom there, and actually it's for diabetes, but it's making the news for weight loss. We'll talk about that as we go along. And then just to have a little fun at the end, I'm gonna throw in an older drug that has some information that's relatively new that's been blasting on Sirius radio, which I listen to all the time when I travel to these uh, other campuses uh, that I'm responsible for. So we'll have some fun with that last one. This is what the formulary approach is. A formulary is a list of finite drugs. It's a finite list of drugs, okay? So not every drug on the market is gonna be on our formulary. So think of the formulary here in the hospital or a health center, formulary is well-defined, but I'm thinking about it even broader like uh, I work with the Department of Community Health for Medica Medicaid, the preferred drug list, preferred with prior approval, non-preferred, and we make I'm an advisory group that, that advises them, we use this approach. So it's a finite list of agents, established value in light of current medical opinion. So what do the latest studies tell us? And you know, that changes a lot. Um, this list should be sufficiently broad to meet the usual clinical problems. Now in a hospital where you actually have learners, that can be more... Uh, a, a more finite list for the state of Georgia for Medicaid. It's broader because you've got a broad uh, group of patients being treated. Uh, avoid, avoids duplication of clinical effect in health centers for Medicaid. That may not be necessary, but it's uh, subject to continuing revision based on new therapy knowledge. I gave this presentation just a few weeks ago, already updated some slides. It's co a constant revision. So in order to make it on this list, of our formulary 
or preferred drug list, if you prefer that, um, the drug has to have one of these, meet at least one of these criteria. And even if it does, it doesn't mean it automatically goes on. A new pharmacological class, unlike anything else out there, those are always fun to learn about. Uh, more efficacious than what we have. We want the best drugs, right? The ones that work the best, the safest medications. So it's safer than what we have. Some pharmacokinetic advantage that translates into something clinically relevant from a pharmaceutical company standpoint. Lots of times they're marketed with a uh, pharma pharmacokinetic advantage that really doesn't translate in anything meaningful. I think we have one uh, this time that does. So that'd be fun to see. If everything else is the same, let's use the co most cost-effective agent. So that's the list you're going to have. And we're actually going to do a little voting as we go along with the group that's here. And those on Zoom can write down your vote and I'll tell you how it goes here uh, at the hospital. I always like to show a little bit of something colorful uh, to get you going on whatever drug we're going to talk about. You usually can tell what it's for just by this happens to be the advertisement for the drug. See a set of lungs there. They're sparkly. Look like they might be working really well. Well, sure enough, this is a new drug to treat asthma. Really interesting uh, mechanism of action, subcutaneously administered thymic stromal lipopoietin blocker. Okay, that's a mouthful, it, but it's the first in its class. So it is something new. The mechanism, this, this uh, thymic stromal lipo, whatever, TSLP will abbreviate it. TSLP levels are correlated with airway obstruction, severe disease, resistance to steroids, so if you're blocking that, all these good things may happen. Uh, it blocks, um, reduces biomarkers, cytokines associated with inflammation. So its mechanism of action makes you think, well, this drug's going to work really well. Well, let's see if it does. It's indicated as an add-on for maintenance treatment in severe asthma. Now, there are a couple other drugs in the last couple of years for severe asthma. This one might have one little difference that might create a niche for it. We'll show you in just a second. Bioavailability from the subcutaneous injections, 77%, pretty good. It's degraded, uh, no hepatic metabolism, so not so much worry about drug interactions. Long half-life, 26 days. So that all looks favorable. What well, does it work? Well, it looks like the slides uh, uh, move the format a little bit, but we can work you through this. Two 52-week randomized double-blind trials, one in folks 12 and over, and one in 18 years and over. Let's look at the 12-year-old one. 1,000 patients, big study. The way they measured it, the outcomes were annual exacerbation rate and FEV1 change from baseline. So if you look at the uh, exacerbation rate, um, 0.93 for the drug, 0.2 for the placebo. So it cut them in half, essentially, if you want to use the numbers that way. And the FEV1 change was statistically significant. Most people say that would be clinically relevant difference as well, both statistically superior to placebo. The other study with 18-year-olds showed pretty much the same thing. So the drug does work. Now, here's the thing that I find most interesting about this is that bottom line. It worked regardless of baseline eosinophil levels. The other drugs for uh, severe asthma exacerbations only work in patients with high eosinophil, eosinophil levels. Remember that because I think that's on the post-test. I'll probably ask a question about that. Uh, at least I turned in a question like that. So it may have a niche in that specific subgroup of patients. Safety-wise, nothing too bad here. A strange thing with these immunological drugs, you don't, never know what else they might do. Well, this TSLP might be involved in the immunological response to some parasitic infections. 
So you, you need this around to fight parasitic infections, but now you're going to block it with this drug. So treat anything uh, parasitic before you use this drug and avoid administration of live attenuated vaccines. The dose 210 milligrams sub-Q, it says by a healthcare professional. I've talked to some folk every four weeks. Now, who is that healthcare professional? Most people see this as a, a nurse or physician. Uh, some folks in North Carolina, they talked about this being a pharmacist. Uh, in Georgia, I don't think that's happening yet, but it could. The cost, though, every four weeks, this is average wholesale price, $3,630 per dose. Pretty expensive medication. So how does it do with our criteria we just talked about? It is a new pharmacological class. Check. Uh, it's more efficacious because in those patients who have normal eosinophil levels, it worked and nothing else does. So it's a checkbox there too. Everything else is pretty the same. So if I were to ask you to vote on this drug, not for a hospital formulary, because it's more of an outpatient drug, uh, for a uh, De Georgia Department of Community Health, think about Medicaid medications, all right? So it could be a preferred drug, which means formulary, a non-preferred drug, which means non-formulary, or a preferred drug with a PA. Now, PA just means there's some criteria by which the patient must meet before it's used. And I've kind of hopefully led you down a pathway for a vote here. Let's see if it works or not. How many in the room, and I'll translate this to the folks on Zoom, how many in the room would make this a preferred drug on Medicare, Medicaid? How about preferred with a PA, with youth criteria? Okay, a lot of hands going up. Any non-preferred? Sometimes the price will get a vote or two that way. Okay, for the Zoom folks, it was pretty much unanimous. Uh, prior approval would be necessary because you want to see that niche of patients with the eosinophil level that's, that's normal, not elevated, and patients will respond to that. Excellent vote. Now we got somebody itching. I can relate to this because I have a spot right now on the side of my leg with some atopic dermatitis going on, uh, but I uh, wonder if I'm going to want to use this drug or not. You tell me. Oops. This is an interleukin-13 antagonist. Now that's a new class of drugs, first in that class. Now Dupixent, uh, which is another drug that's an interleukin antagonist, it's interleukin-4 and 13, but this one is just 13, so it is a new class. It inhibits uh, IL-13-induced responses, including release of pro-inflammatory cytokines, chemokines, and IgE, indicated for moderate severe atopic dermatitis in adults, whose disease is not adequate control with topical prescription therapies or when those therapies are not advisable. It can be used with or without corticosteroids. Now, before I go any further, this year there were two other medications <clears throat> approved for atopic dermatitis. They're both JAK inhibitors, Janus kinase inhibitors. So, uh, and both of those, one is topical, one is oral, and they carry all the warnings with the JAK inhibitors uh, from before. The, the topical ones for mild, the oral ones for moderate, and this is for moderate to severe. So a lot of new things for atopic dermatitis this year. Subcutaneous injection, bioavailability about 76%. Uh, metabolized to small peptides. I'm not too worried about any drug interactions with this, I don't believe. Half-life is about three weeks. So again, we're looking at a, a monthly injection. <clears throat> Does it work? Three double-blind randomized placebo-controlled trials, almost 2,000 patients, 18 years and older, 
moderate to severe atopic dermatitis, not controlled by anything topical. The uh, investigator global assessment scores were measured and they ranged, what they looked at was a, they wanted a score of zero to one. Zero means the skin is clear. One means it's nearly clear. So the percentage of patients that made that or reached that primary endpoint, 16 to 21% in the treatment group, nine, seven to 9% in the placebo group. So not earth shattering, but this is a really hard to treat disease, especially the severe ones. So it might give us a new tool. Some patients uh, were re-randomized every four weeks if the treatment worked and it was fairly successful every four weeks. And I'll show you the dosing in just a minute. Most common uh, side effects, things that happen more than 1%, upper respiratory tract infections, conjunctivus, uh, injection site reactions, eosinophilia. Uh, there is a warning about that, about the eye symptoms. That could be uh, something we need to keep an eye on because already brand new drug already have a warning about uh, eye complications. Helmet infections. This drug can, uh, if you have a pre-existing infection, you got to treat that first. So again, messing with your uh, immune system can do some strange things to the treatment of other types of infections. Avoid the use of any live vaccines with this as well. So now this is oddly dosed. So think about this. I'm not sure I would want to do this. Got to complete all your vaccinations. And then the initial dose is 600 milligrams subcutaneous. That's four times a 150 milligram injection. So the loading dose is four shots. Then it's 300 milligrams every other week. That's two times 150 milligrams. So two shots every other week. And if you're doing well, anyway, less than 100 kilos, you might go to 300, that's two shots every four weeks if you're getting a good response. Now I did find a lower price on GoodRx website for $1,700 for the two syringe carton. So that's uh, $1,700 every two weeks for most people. Average wholesale price is $1,000 per syringe. Uh, this is similar to Dupilumab. And Dupilumab has a direct-to-consumer advertising that's actually one of my favorite over the past couple of years because it has this little kid. He's probably about 10 years old. And he said, uh, <clears throat> and it's steroid-free. Well, it is, but it has a lot of other potential complications besides just being a steroid, and it can be used with steroids. So here we have a new pharmacological class. You see how it's dosed and you see the price. Think about Georgia Medicaid. How many people would like to make this a preferred drug on the Medicaid drug list? Raise your hand. How about preferred with a PA? How about non-preferred? Okay, for the Zoom audience, it looks like a unanimous vote for non-preferred. That's probably how we'd vote right now because I'm finding it hard, uh, finding it hard to find a niche for this particular drug. We gotta get multiple injections. <clears throat> so not crazy excited about this drug, but a, a new tool to use for, for difficult, treat, difficult to treat disease. Uh oh, we've lost control of the, oh, there, oh, that, that went crazy. Let's back up. <laughs> I went through, wow, we went through two drugs really fast. Okay, now this one. This is one of those rare occasions where we got an old drug, but it's formulated in such a way that gives us a pharmacokinetic advantage. 
So I'm just tell you that right off the bat because this picture kind of shows that. Here's a young lady. See how red it is around her fingers? That's that migraine headache coming on. She's really hurting. And this is a new device to administer a nasal spray for the treatment of migraine. Now, dihydroergotamine, old drug, been around forever. Okay. It's an agonist of uh, 5-HT, 1B, 1D receptors on cranial blood vessels. This results in vasoconstriction. Uh, also inhibits pro-inflammatory neuropeptide release. Uh, this is indicated for nasal spray for treatment of migraine with or without aura in adults. Now, if you're old school, you remember a product called migranal nasal spray, been on the market for years. It's also dihydroergotamine nasal spray. And so why in the world am I talking about this? Because it's one of those few drugs that really has something pharmacokinetically different, uh, or at least a product different that I think is significant. Look at the product characteristics here. This drug delivers the drug to the upper nasal cavity with greater bioavailability, 58.9%. When you look at the old product, it delivered the drug to the lower nasal cavity with bioavailability of about 15.2% much better bioavailability, much more uh, effective use of this drug with this new uh, uh, delivery system. So it's pretty interesting. Half-life's about 11.9 hours. Um, so looks like a potentially good product. But again, it, as you're familiar with this drug, there's a whole host of side effects. What I found out interesting about this is when I'm trying to develop an efficacy slide, there was nothing there. There was nothing on the... There was nothing, in, no new efficacy trials were required for this product. They flew by just on the old trials with the old drug. And based on its bioavailability, they said, well, you don't have to do an efficacy study because we know it's going to work. I don't know of many other examples of that. Pretty interesting stuff to me. But dihydrogotamine has a number of side effects. Uh, nasal congestion, abnormal taste, abnormal olfactory test, sinus congestion, epistasis, and nosebleeds. Nasal discomfort, rhinorrhea, dizziness, nausea, vomiting, uh, increased blood pressure, increased cardiovascular and cerebral events, cardio, uh, cerebrovascular events can occur. So this is not a drug you would use lightly. This is for somebody who's not really responding to other things and you need another tool. Uh, don't administer this with any uh, cytochrome P450, 3A4 strong inhibitors like uh, the macrolids, uh, some of the azoantifungals, just to give you a couple of examples. And don't administer with any vasoconstrictors. Okay? So lots of warnings about this. It may have a little bitty narrow niche, certainly better than the older product. So if it's better than the older product, I bet you're guessing it's a lot more expensive. Well, to my surprise, it's less expensive than a generic version of migranal, which is out there. 350, uh, 350, uh, 353 to 212. So it's less expensive. Kind of surprised. So pharmacy, uh, counseling things, the vials inserted in the device, device primed with four pumps, one spay in each nostril. If you need a second dose, you have to use a new vial and a new device. You can give in one hour after the first one. Okay, so lots of things in the counseling area to do. So this is an odd one on this slide. I hardly ever see these highlighted as meeting these criteria. Not new pharmacological class, not more efficacious, not safer. But it does have a pharmacokinetic advantage, how it's bioavailability. It's better absorbed because of where it's delivered. And it's less expensive. Interesting. So what do you want to do with this one? Um, 
I've get, uh, given this uh, particular drug a few times and I've got mixed votes every time. So let's see what you folks think. How many believe this should be on Georgia Medicaid preferred drug list? All right, preferred with prior approval, raise your hand. Okay, non-preferred. Okay, I've got a mixed vote and that's un not unexpected. That's what I've seen in the past from other groups. Now, I don't know what to do with this one. I would probably make it prior approval, but have such a uh, very intensive criteria for use before a patient would be approved to use this because there's a lot of side effects to worry about, drug interactions, um, patient type. Uh, you wouldn't want to give this to somebody who already had high blood pressure. So a lot of things you have to worry about. Okay, now, I ran into a new phenomenon this year. I'm always interested in how new drugs are promoted, especially direct-to-consumer advertising. Uh, my wife and I are working with a group of drug information specialists around the country. We just submitted a paper for publication on drug misinformation and where that comes from. Uh, pretty timely with all the stuff about COVID vaccines, now, a lot of misinformation about those. Uh, but misinformation about a number of medications is always out there. And so I, I, we, we looked at social media, we looked at news stations and you know, where misinformation might come from. It didn't dawn on me that YouTube is a vehicle for a lot of drug information. So when I was looking up uh, uh, on Google images for things to show for each new product, I came across this image. And sure enough, there's the YouTube uh, a link for you if you want to watch this. It's really pretty funny. Um, but it's supposed, supposedly non-drug company sponsored somebody talking about this drug. And you can see if this drug works like he says it does, man, this guy's got some pretty severe acne and he's perfectly clear in the far picture. I don't know the credibility of those photos. This is an androgen receptor inhibitor. That's really important. It's the first topical product in this class approved by the FDA. And as you know, acne is a huge marketplace, acne, acne treatment. You got a first in class approved by the FDA. This competes with dihydrotestosterone for binding to androgen receptors in the skin, reduces transcription androgen response genes, results in inhibition of sebum production, decreased inflammation. This all sounds pretty good. For it's the treatment of acne vulgaris in patients 12 and older. So first in class, new way to treat acne, that's a big marketplace. So is this gonna get our attention? Pharmacokinetically, only small amounts are absorbed, then rapidly metabolized to a weak corticosteroid. I wonder if that's actually true. That's in the package insert. That's the only place I could find any information on uh, pharmacokinetics. Because we get the side effect profile, an androgen, an anti-androgen type product, it might cause some side effects that may be unwanted. So let's see what we have here. Two randomized double-blind studies versus vehicle alone, 50, almost 1,500 patients, co-primary endpoints, success rates zero for clear, one for almost clear, and a greater than two-point improvement from baseline investigator global assessment. And that's from zero to four, so it's got to go from four to two, two to zero, three to one, see what I mean? They also looked at reduction in inflammatory lesions and reduction in non-inflammatory lesions. I'm sorry for the uh, reformatting of the slides. Sometimes that works with one version of PowerPoint versus another, but we can figure this out. Uh, for, for uh, let's think about this, success rate uh, was 19 to 
versus 7 to 9% for vehicle loan. So it works, but not earth shattering. A reduction in the inflammatory lesions, minus 19 to minus 20 in the placebo of the vehicle loan, minus 12 to 15. Uh, non inflammatory lesions, minus 19 uh, percent to minus 19 to 20 compared to placebo, minus 11 to minus 13. Now you see the reference for this is data on file with Sun Pharmaceuticals. This makes it incredibly difficult to evaluate or critique how well the study was done. It was a good study design. Did they do the statistics correctly? So we couldn't get into all that drug literature evaluation we can when we're looking at a published study, uh, which I always have at the bottom of the slide if it's been published. So take that with a grain of salt. That's what is out there. Uh, it's data on file, but you can find this on the FDA website. We'll talk about that more in a minute. Most common erythema, scaling, dryness, pruritus. Laboratory evidence of hypo, uh, hypothalamic, uh, hypothalamic pituitary adrenal H HPA axis suppression with large doses has been, uh, has been reported. If that happens, stop the treatment. Polycystic ovaries and amenorrhea have been reported because you've got some absorption of androgen type drug. Uh, elevated potassium levels, that's, that's strange to me. I can figure this one out. 5% with the drug and 4% of the vehicle. So that's, I'm not sure I can explain that one. Avoid concomitant use with anything else that's irritating. So you got a lot of things to worry about with this drug. Thin layer, one gram, uh, applied at affected areas in the morning and at night. Clean the skin before application. 60 gram tube is refrigerated until dispensed then kept at room temperature. And again, a counseling point here, discard the tube 180 days after dispensing or 30 days after opening, whichever one comes first. And it's $550 per tube average wholesale price. Okay, so that's probably about a month's supply. So about $500 a month. So it is a new pharmacological class, but there's a lot of other things out there and it wasn't compared to anything else. So what do you think? Preferred drug on Medicaid, raise your hand. Preferred with prior approval, raise your hand. Non-preferred, raise your hand. Okay, looks like we got a primary vote for non-preferred. I would do the same thing. I think that's probably where this drug should be until we see some comparative information. Back to our YouTube. Now this one is even more interesting because this gentleman uh, describes himself as a, uh, a fellow and the American Association of Optometrists, he's an optometrist, not an ophthalmologist, but an optometrist, a young guy, and uh, he's talking about this new dry eye nasal spray. A nasal spray for dry eyes. Now, if you watch this YouTube video, it's really kind of humorous because he says, yes, I'm an op optometrist. I have no influence from the pharmaceutical companies at all. Uh, recently, I was at the National Optometrist meeting and I had a chance to go around the exhibit hall. I got to spend a lot of time with the drug company and it shows a picture of their exhibit, which is one of those, you've ever been to a medical meeting, you know, these huge exhibits. Uh, and he, you can see him walking by and has all this uh, bells and whistles making this look like the greatest drug on the world. So he's getting all of his information directly from the drug company. So. I would kind of watch a YouTube video and say, okay, I'm taking this with a grain of salt. But now it even gets more interesting. Look at the generic name for this drug. It's Travaya. He makes a big point of saying it's Travaya, not Travaya. Travaya, or Travaya, yeah, Travaya, I think that's what he says. It's the first nasal spray approved for the treatment of dry eye disease. But look at the name. Does that look familiar? 
Yes, Chantix for smoking cessation when taken orally. But as a nasal spray, it treats dry eye disease. That is mind boggling to me. So I'm wondering if you have enough nasal spray if you stop smoking. Uh, I'll tell you why that's not true in a second. Pharmacokinetics, if higher than recommended doses are administered, you can detect it in plasma in five minutes, but small amounts. So obviously you couldn't treat smoking cessation with, na with nasal spray. As far as efficacy goes, there were two 28-day double-blind trials. Only one of these published, but it's published in Ophthalmology, a reputable journal. And they looked at two things. They looked at the drug and the vehicle. The response rate was 47.3% for the drug. The Schmiermer mean test is just measuring the wetness around the eye. It gives you an idea of how much tear production there is. 11.3 uh, millimeters versus 6.3 for the placebo of the vehicle. The response rate with the vehicle is 27.8%. So the drug does work. So it is a, an effective treatment for dry eye, not for everybody, but it does work better than placebo. And that Schmiermer mean change, I was told that that's a clinically relevant improvement. Most common, sneezing, coughing, throat irritation, installation site uh, irritation, all those are predictable with a nasal spray. So it looks like a fairly safe drug. Nothing reported about nightmares or all the side effects with Chantix. None of that's been reported with this nasal spray. I think it's because very little is absorbed. One spray in each nostril twice daily. Now this is good counseling points. You gotta prime the bottle before use with seven sprays. If it's not used for five days, Prime it with one more spray, and if you miss a dose, skip it. So there's all the counseling points on dosing. A package with two bottles, which is about a 30-day supply, is $592. So we have a new pharmacological class to treat dry eyes. Does it work better than what else is out there? No head-to-head -head trials, so we don't know. So what do you think about this one? Preferred on Medicaid. Raise your hand. Preferred with a PA on Medicaid, raise your hand. Non-preferred, raise your hand. Yeah, I'm gonna vote, it's for the Zoom folks, it was pretty much unanimous, non-preferred. I would vote the same way. Now, I talking about this drug because I have a good friend who's on dialysis. And one of the things that he complains about, and he's not a good candidate for a kidney transplant because he will not quit smoking. So he's very hard-headed. But uh, one thing he complains about in dialysis is incredible itching. So here's a drug to treat the itching secondary to receiving dialysis. What makes this really interesting to me, this is a IV administered kappa opioid receptor agonist. Now, wait a minute, an opioid receptor agonist. One thing you know, if you've ever got an injection of morphine about, if it's IV within minutes, you start to itch because opiates tend to release histamine. And so itching is perfectly normal following a, a dose of, a, of an opiate. But this is a kappa opioid receptor agonist. This is a non-controlled substance, has no abuse potential reported anyway. So it's not a scheduled medication. It's the first in its class. It's the first drug for this indication. Treatment of moderate severe pruritus associated with chronic kidney disease in adults on dialysis. And that describes my friend. Uh, the mechanism of action, don't really know how it works, but activating these uh, KORs at 
uh, kappa opioid receptor uh, on per peripheral sensory neurons and immune cells may exert some antipyretic effect, but how it does that, not really sure. Given by an IV bolus, the package insert said it's not metabolized. The half-life prior dialysis is about 23 to 31 hours, eliminating the feces primarily. Does it work? Two 12-week double-blind trials. One of these were published in New England Journal of Medicine. So I had a chance to take a look at this one. Uh, 848 patients uh, total. Patients on hemodialysis with moderate severe itching. Weekly score of, uh, I've never heard of the score before. It's a pretty cool score. Weekly mean score of four on a 24-hour worst itching intensity numerical rating scale. I didn't know there's such a thing. Worst itching intensity numerical scale. A, a zero to 10 scale with the higher score being the greatest itching. Treated after hemodialysis three times weekly for 12 weeks. Primary outcome, percentage of patients with a four point improvement. The results, the treatment, 37 to 41, placebo 21 to 36. That was statistically significant, probably clinically relevant because it's almost twice. But there's no trials versus other drugs used for itching in dialysis patients. And there's a number of things we could potentially use, but uh, no trials versus those, but it's a new class. Pretty uh, safe looking drug there. Uh, patients, uh, sleepiness was a problem in older patients, uh, about 7%. Nothing else there. Gate disturbance at 6.6, .6, you expect that from an opiate. Uh, but there's no euphoria, no addiction potential, I'm told. Uh, diarrhea, dizziness, nausea were at the top of the list there. 0.5 micrograms per kilogram, target drive body weight, IV bolus after the dialysis session. No studies with peritoneal dialysis, only uh, hemodialysis. One year supply is about $17,000. Now, this sounds interesting on the surface, but it hasn't been compared with other things for itching in, these, in this patient group. But the other things for itching has not helped my friend, so he's all excited about this potentially new drug until I told him it's $70,000. But it is a new pharmacological class, maybe more efficacious than what's out there, but that's the criteria. So what would you like to do with this one for Medicaid, Georgia Medicaid? Preferred, raise your hand. Non-preferred, raise your hand. All right, I threw that in there quicker. Uh, with a PA, raise your hand. Okay, we've got a, it's kind of a mixed vote between with a PA and non-preferred. Yeah, because I think there's some patients that might benefit from this. You know, a person like my friend who's nothing's worked and he, it drives him crazy. You know, it may be, may be uh, useful to that person, but certainly if you have a PA, these would be pretty strict PA. All right, this drug has been in the news a lot lately, uh, but not for its indication. It's been in the news because of weight loss. And we'll get to that in just a minute. I haven't, this is the advertisement for the drug. I hadn't quite figured out what that means, but it's pretty to look at, so that's nice. All right, this is, it's a new pharmacological class because it does two things instead of one thing that its competitors does. It's both a glucose-dependent insulinotropic polypeptide, a GIP, but it's also a glucon-light peptide one, GLP, which we have several of those on the market but it's the first on the market with both of those activities. So it has a new pharmacological class. Indications to improve glycemic control in adults with type two diabetes, subcutaneous once a week. So it's a one, one of those once a week GLP-1s. Uh, other GLP-1 receptor agonists 
liraglutide and dulaglutide add in their indication to reduce the risk of cardiovascular events. Okay, so they have the outcome studies performed and concluded there are some cardiovascular benefits of using those drugs. This drug hasn't been tested out that far yet, so we don't know that. Um, DLP-1 receptor agonists semaglutide and liraglutide add chronic weight management in their indications. Now, this drug does not have an indication yet. Heard a nice grand rounds on this yesterday. The uh, speaker uh, was talking about weight loss medications and uh, on one of her uh, test the audience questions, uh, she had, which of the following would be a good uh, drug for this person who's overweight and has diabetes? And, uh, and she had this drug listed and I think it was semaglutide listed as well as A and B, you know, one of those kind of answers. So the audience response was almost 100% both of the drugs. And she said, sorry, it's a trick question. Uh, the terzapatide is not indicated for weight loss yet. So she tricked everybody. Sub-Q drug, um, eliminated urine feces, half-life about five days. So you can give it once a week. All right, now here's the interesting thing. The drug for diabetes works great. Um, there was a plus, verse, there are five randomized trials, all published, got them down here for you, um, versus placebo, semaglutide, long-acting insulin, an add-on to metformin, and all these but the placebo trial. And it increased, uh, in trying to look at increased A1C lowering, that's kind of a right, better way to put that, lowering A1C in all the arms of the studies that were done. The study, studies on cardiac effects and events, that's ongoing. They don't have that data yet, so it's not approved that way. Uh, and it, uh, it worked in all these things. In every situation, it lowered uh, A1C more than all the combinations. So the drug does work. It's a slightly different mechanism of action. It's no question for diabetes. It's a good drug. The long-term effects we'll need to know later. But look at this. And this is the one that got all the attention in the news uh, back in the summertime. Double-blind randomized trial, 2,500 patients, weight loss study, weight reductions of minus 15%, minus 19.5%, minus 20.9% with various doses of this drug, and the placebo was minus 3.1%. That's a higher weight loss percentage than any of these GOP-1 drugs. And this was published in New England Journal of Medicine in the summer. It was on every cover of every newspaper uh, for a couple of weeks talking about this uh, game changer for weight loss. But again, not indicated yet. It probably will be soon. Uh, Safety-wise, similar side effects to the other GOP-1 drugs. Uh, it does delay gastric emptying time. So there's a warning in the package interest about administering with oral contraceptives. If you delay gastric emptying time, you may make them less effective. So that's something to consider. If you're using this for weight loss, uh, might be on alternative contraception for a while. Start with 2.5 milligrams subcutaneously weekly. After four weeks, increase to five milligrams. You can go up in 2.5 increments every four weeks to a max of 15 milligrams. A 28-day supply of any dose so pretty much a month's supply, any dose, $974. That's relatively comparable price to the other agents out there. So now we have a new tool. Currently, to my knowledge, there aren't any weight loss medications on Georgia Medicaid. But if you think about the potential health benefits of that significant of weight loss, 
It makes you interested in this drug and GLP-1s in, in general. So what do you think? Uh, oh, oh, by the way, I said there's no weight loss things on Georgia Medicaid, but the other agents for, uh, for diabetes are on there. Uh, we did this little study not too long ago of looking at uh, state usage and patients who had a diagnosis of diabetes and were on these drugs and patients who did not have a diagnosis of diabetes on some of these drugs. And about 40% of the patients on the drugs didn't have diabetes. They were using it for weight loss, which is supposedly not approved, uh, a non-covered use in a lot of insurance plans. Interesting. So what do you want to do with this one? Should we make it a preferred drug? Raise your hand. Preferred with a PA, raise your hand. Uh, Non-preferred, raise your hand. Okay, now all of you that most people voted uh, with a PA, I'm hoping you're thinking we'll have it with a PA and we'll use it in diabetic patients who need to lose some weight. Because right now as a weight loss tool alone, it's not approved for that. There hasn't been enough data generated to say that it's safe for that indication, you're probably gonna be. And probably by the end, by mid next year, it'll have that indication. But until then, let's hold out on using it that way. All right, now this is, I'm, I'm glad Alex picked this drug because this is something different. Um, here's a person with uh, alopecia areata. Now this is uh, a, a condition that was in the news big time around the Oscar time because somebody insulted somebody's wife who had this condition and somebody walked up to the stage at the Oscars and punched the guy who made the joke. I won't name names, but I'm sure you know who I'm talking about. Uh, but this is what this is. And this is a person who doesn't have it too severe. Uh, and supposedly the actor's wife has a severe case and it wasn't a good thing to make a joke about her bald head. Now, interesting, this is a Janus kinase inhibitor a JAK inhibitor. Now I mentioned there were two JAK inhibitors released this year for atopic dermatitis. The JAK inhibitor has been used for a variety of things, uh, most notably uh, rheumatoid arthritis, but this particular one actually was used for COVID-19 for a period of time in certain hospitalized patients. I don't think we're using it anymore for that, but it is an approved indication. This a new indication for this drug is severe alopecia areata, it's the first systemic treatment in the U.S. for this. Uh, the mechanism, selectable, reversible JAK1 and JAK2 inhibition may interrupt the cytokine signaling implicated in the pathogenesis of this baldness issue. Half uh, pharmacokinetics, nothing too notable here. Nice long half-life. Uh, it is primarily eliminated by 3A4. So you should pop in your brain all the potential drug interactions with macrolids, azoantafungals, a few other drugs. Does it work? This is actually pretty impressive to me. Uh, two double-blind trials, one published uh, in New England Journal of Medicine this year. Um, placebo controlled trial, 1,200 patients. Patients had greater than 50% scalp hair loss, and they've had it for more than six months. So that's much more severe than the person I showed in the picture, okay? The results, they wanted patients who had eight, at least 80% coverage at week 36. With this drug, the lower dose, 19 to 22.8%, the higher dose, 35.9 to 38.8%, whereas placebo pretty much didn't work. There are no head-to-head -head trials, pun intended, uh, with other uh, topical things that might be used. Um, Ruxolitinib 
and tofacitinib have also been used for that. They're JAK inhibitors as well, but they're not approved. They don't have the approved indication. People have used those and found that they might work. So pretty interesting. So this is the third drug in that class be used this way, but it's the only one that's FDA approved labeling for that. Most common, again, affecting the uh, immune systems, respiratory urinary tract infections, headache, acne, hyperlipidemia, some others, there's a black box warning on all JAK inhibitors. Every JAK inhibitor out there has the same black box warning uh, dealing with uh, cardiovascular events like fomas, uh, some other uh, cancer issues, thrombosis, death. Um, so some serious things. They're rare, but it is a black box warning. Don't administer any live vaccines with any of those JAK inhibitors. Two milligrams orally once daily, increase to four milligrams if needed. Once the response is achieved, reduce to two milligrams. Reduce the dose by 50% if uh, moderate renal impairment. 30-day supply is about $2,500. Now, you notice in the study, let's go back to the study a second, because it's pretty interesting. They studied it for 36 weeks and the patients had 80% uh, coverage. So it was working, a percentage of the patients was working pretty well at 36 weeks. Well, the thing that I wanted to know but couldn't find, there's absolutely no data out there on the need to use this long-term. So once you get the hair growth back, can you stop taking it? We don't have an answer for that. It'd be interesting. I've got a feeling it's going to have to be some kind of maintenance, but there's no information on that right now. So what do you think about this one? Interesting indication. Certainly been in the headlines lately. Preferred drug on Medicaid. Raise your hand. Non-preferred. Okay, a few hands. Preferred with a PA. Raise your hand. Okay. Mixed vote there uh, for folks on Zoom. We've got a mixed vote between non-preferred and preferred with PA. Now, the, uh, the thing that bothers me a little bit about this is I don't know about the long-term effect. I don't know about any comparisons, so hold up that. All right, we got one last drug, and we'll go through this very quickly. This is not a new drug, but it came up recently because my mother-in-law said, I'm having some memory problems. Should I take Prevagen? Because it is heavily, <coughs> heavily, heavily, heavily advertised. So I said I'd look into it, and I just put together my formulary approach to looking at it. Excuse me. This is a dietary supplement, so it's not going to be on Medicaid list, so we won't vote on this one. The active ingredient, ooh, that's an 11-letter word with seven vowels in it, so I'm not going to attempt to pronounce it, impossible to pronounce, but it binds with calcium. Dysregulation of neuronal calcium may be involved in the pathogenesis of Alzheimer's disease, so in theory, there's a theoretical reason why this drug could work. It's heavily marketed to improve memory. Matter of fact, I hear it 10 times a day if I'm driving between Augusta and Athens and listen to Sirius Radio Sports Channel, advertised like crazy. All right, here's the kicker. And this is what I told my mother-in-law, she was very impressed. Little if any gets into the brain because it's hydrolyzed in the GI tract. So all that uh, issue that it might have on calcium, neuronal calcium, out the window because it never gets crosses the blood-brain barrier, okay? Does it work? Well, listening to Sirius Radio, it says there is a clinical trial has proven this drug has improved memory. Let's look at this trial. Patients 40 to 91, self-reported self -reported memory problems. Patients, had, patients with history of dementia, neurological disease, memory-related impairment disorders were excluded. 
There was no statistical difference in improvement in the performance in computerized cognitive tests. No difference. Okay. However, I just kind of get a giggle when I hear this on post hoc analysis, though. Patients with, listen to this, patients with no or minimal cognitive impairment had a significant improvement from baseline with the active drug. But it wasn't compared to placebo. They just had a change for the better. But you really can't do that uh, statistically. Uh, that's a major flaw in the study design. There has been a sub uh, subsequent analysis of this that showed absolutely no difference between any groups. And that I put the uh, website if you want to look, take a look at that study. Pretty interesting. So essentially, the drug doesn't work. Okay. The FDA sent the company a letter warning them, hey, you haven't reported some of these bad side effects, seizures, strokes, <coughs> worsening symptoms of MS. They're very, 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 very rare, but they did occur, and they didn't report them, so the FDA sent them a warning letter. The most common ones, headaches, constipation, dizziness, mild things. <coughs> Excuse me. I can tell I've talked for 53 minutes. Okay, regular strength, extra strength. From Amazon, you can buy this for $30 a month. Extra strength, $50 a month. <coughs> and what boggles my mind is the Amazon ratings. 6,000 reviews with ratings of 4.5 out of 5 stars. <coughs> now, I, I mentioned this at a pharmacist meeting about a month ago. And I said, I use these ratings all the time to buy books and CDs. And when I said the word CDs, they all laughed because who buys CDs anymore? I do because I'm old. <laughs> but it does get good reviews. What does that tell me? Placebo effect. So it's a new pharmacological class. Okay. We're not going to vote. That's just a joke. I wouldn't make you vote on this one because it probably doesn't work, but it does have some placebo effect. So actually some pharmacists said, I'm going to recommend it because it has a good placebo effect. Patients like it. Okay, real quickly here to finish up. Here's some other drugs that were um, approved this year that I think are interesting. <coughs> Excuse me. The one of interest, uh, the most to me was this one in the middle here that looks uh, for prevention of chemo related, chemotherapy related myelosuppression. I got excited about that. And um, oh, I got, I got a word here. I think so. Um, I got excited about that because it sounded like something really, really good if it could decrease uh, 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 myelosuppression in chemo drugs. That's one of the major side effects, right? Patients get infections. Uh, and so I asked our oncology specialist, she said, she said, well, don't get too excited. It's a very narrow group of regimens that's been studied in. So it's really, really a narrow niche of where that drug might be used. And there's some other ones there for you. I got a new sleeper on the bottom there for you. Another drug for plaque psoriasis. We need a bunch of those, right? Because there's already a dozen on the market. Nothing else too exciting there. But in the last minute or so, I want to run through some slides really quickly just to impress you with what's out there. There's over 9,000 medications in development right now. 74% of them represent a new pharmacological class. That's pretty exciting. Now, I work a lot in antimicrobial stewardship. And a few years ago, we talked about, oh, my gosh, there's no drugs in the pipeline. Uh, so we're in trouble. And there were actually only two or three in the pipeline at the time we first started with this antimicrobial stewardship stuff back in uh, the early 2000s. But the FDA incentivized companies to produce some more antibiotics. I mean, if you're a drug company, do you want to produce a drug that's chronically used for a lifetime or one that's used for seven to 10 days? 
you'll make a lot more money on the chronic medications. <clears throat> so we got worried that there weren't going to be any new ones. But take a look at this. Glancing down the middle of the list there, treatments for MRSA, uh, treatment of C. diff infections, prevention of C. diff infections, um, complicated UTIs, uh, diabetic foot infections. We see a lot of those in Augusta. Acinetobacter infections, which are typically multi-drug resistant. On the bottom there, which went one of the first oral carbapenem prodrugs for complicated UTIs. That's actually a fast track in phase three, should be released relatively soon. And a lot of those are phase three. A lot of them are fast tracked. In the world of diabetes, you don't have to look at everything on here, but I do want to point out along the left-hand side of the slide, if you look at the mechanism of action, we've got several new mechanisms of actions to treat diabetes. That's pretty exciting. And most of these are in phase two. Some drugs for type one diabetes, some drugs for type two. <clears throat> now I have uh, my heart's in the world of allergic rhinitis. Uh, fortunate enough to write a couple of book chapters on allergic rhinitis, suffer from that. <clears throat> so got personal experience with it. There is a lot of things for allergies. Uh, there's a lot of immunotherapies that were released in the last couple of years. They haven't been that effective, uh, especially ones I had high hopes for like dust mites, really doesn't work that well. But there's another new one for that. There's, uh, and the grass pollens were marginally useful. Some more for that coming out. Peanut allergy has been one released. <coughs> Hopefully this one will work a little better. Cat allergies, so that's all promising stuff. For allergic rhinitis, several new combination products. An internasal ammonia oxidizing bacteria-based agent. Anxious to see what that's all about. It's in phase two, so I really haven't read much about it. And for asthma, uh, some new mechanisms of action out there. <coughs> Our mental health for anxiety, uh, social anxiety, Alzheimer's, a variety of things there. I'm sorry, this got uh, formatted a little differently. All these are in phase two, a couple in phase one. One in phase one down there, cyclobenzaprine, low-dose cyclobenzaprine. That's odd, but it's being used for treatment of uh, post-traumatic stress, stress syndrome and fibromyalgia. Specifically for Alzheimer's, there's 15 drugs in phase three, two in phase, uh, 40 in phase two, 28 more in phase one. It's been very disappointing what happened last year with the release of a new Alzheimer's drug. It just uh, didn't work. It got approved anyway, kind of disturbing, but lots of things in the pipeline. Other mental health, depression, lots of things coming, a lot of phase two for uh, uh, major depressive disorder. Schizophrenia has got some new drugs. Substance abuse got some new drugs. Gonna be exciting times over the next few years with new drugs to talk about. My resources for this, Lexicomp for basic drug information, the package insert, pretty good stuff, but nothing comparative. Medical letter, highly recommended medical letter for non-biased uh, new drug information. The FDA.gov website's fantastic, but it requires playing with it for a long time to be able to find all the components that you need, like uh, minutes of the committees that meet and vote on drugs. And then the references and websites are listed on the, on the pages there. All right, my, uh, <clears throat> I'm good with email. So if you have questions, because it's 1259, if you have questions, you can email me. I'll take my best stab at getting back with you as quick as possible. This is my UGA when it's a little bit simpler. So I put that one up for in case you're used to email. Some people are emailing me at jmayatagusta.edu. This is easy to remember. Rest the M at uga.edu. All comes to me. All right, with, with the last minute left, are there any questions in the audience? Okay, question back there. You got a microphone. Hopefully I can hear you. I'm a little hard of hearing. Yeah, there's a cheap way to... Uh lose weight if you want to, but it's not just the medications that you use because any medication is going to be lost. 
if you, you know, keep having Cheerios in the morning, you know, uh, pound cakes at night and the whole thing. So it has to do with diet also. So I recommend one of the things, the greatest things you can do is go to ketogenic diet more than anything else in the world. By the way, the same ketogenic diet, along with extra virgin coconut oil has been shown, it has been proven to definitely help with dementia, especially Alzheimer's at the beginning. Once you're in the third stage or whatever, it's goodbye. But in the early trials, it's worked. The other thing is there's a little drug, not a drug actually, it's a leaf that comes from India. It's called Gemnima. And you can take that, it's a little capsule, and in 40 minutes curtails your taste to sugars. So let's say you drink a Coca-Cola and 40 minutes, I give you the capsule in 40 minutes, a Coca-Cola tastes like cardboard. Oh, wow. <laughs> so in other words, you spit it out, can't take it anymore. The other thing is I, myself, I only try to eat once a day. I only eat once a day. I go 16 to 20 hours fasting. No, if buts are wise. And my mentation is perfectly well. And it's like everything else. Number one cause of, you know, disease in the body is inflammation, heart attacks, stroke, and the whole thing. Going back to ergotamine, migraine headaches, a lot of people bypass the most important thing. A lot of migraine headaches are produced by what is called a PFO in your heart, Mm -hmm. pain for Raymond Ubali. And you have defects. If it's greater than three millimeters, you got to put a Start Edwards uh, umbrella on there. Otherwise, your chances of getting a stroke are almost 100%. And a lot of people say, oh, take this, take that, you know, for the migraines. Or whatever. No, 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 you can't do that. Because you got to first have a bubble study with a, uh, with a 2D echo to see if there's any more defects. And you got to treat that. And believe me, even for uh, lung diseases, the best thing is, uh, four to five hours before you go to bed, please don't eat anything. Regurgitation goes to your lung. Elevate the back of your bed 10 to 15 inches. And number one, which has been shown in the Japanese market, uh, Ubiquinol, CoQ10, 200 milligrams. Well, you got to take it in doses of 800 to 1200 milligrams. Improves your FEB1 volumes expiratory fantastically. So, you know, there's ways to go in nature. I didn't believe, but I put my patients on it. And guess what? My patients were my guinea pigs. And yes, they did improve. And the lab results showed it. And their health showed it. Thank you so much for those comments. The thing about intermittent fasting, I was walking through, leaving the grocery store the other day, and there were three different magazines on the value of intermittent fasting. So that's become quite the popular thing and with good science behind it. So thanks for all those comments. I appreciate that. Anybody else? Do we have any other questions? We had none online. All right. Okay. Well, if you do, please email me. I'll be glad to uh, take care of it for you. Thanks so much for your your, uh, staying uh, enthused and uh, uh, involved with the presentation. Appreciate your voting. And thanks so much for having me here. It's so fun to see former students here. So thanks again. Thank you, Rusty.